This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Well, if you like crime novels, you know that some can be about cold cases. But this murder mystery has a hot setting. Its title is Death in the Sauna. Welcome, Dennis Altman. Hi, nice to be here. Dennis, you're more widely known as an academic writer. In fact, I had to study one of your books at uni. So what are your other 17 books about? (laughs) Well, um, look, most of the books I've written have really been about sex and politics. Um, I've written a whole lot of other stuff as well, which people tend to forget. I did write a... A book about the politics of postage stamps, the only time I've written a coffee table book, uh, which I think goes for quite high sums now on eBay. And a long time ago, I wrote a novel, The Comfort of Men, which has, I think, been discreetly forgotten. (laughs) Usually the topics, though, is homosexuality. And uh, this one, um, you didn't have to do any bibliographies or any footnotes. I didn't have to do bibliography of footnotes, but I did have to do a certain amount of research because Death in the Sauna is set 20 years ago in London. Mm -hmm. And so I had to get a whole lot of things right, such as the level of technology. For example, mobile phones were then in use, but of course smartphones of the sort we now use were not. Um, It was possible to hook up with someone online, but using computers that today we would regard as old-fashioned. So there was actually a certain amount of research. I think the difference is, of course, you don't cite that that sort of research in a novel. Mm. Well, London, 2003. There is about to be a global AIDS conference run by the Global AIDS Trust. How did Pomfrey Lister get to become head of the Trust? I think that Pomfrey Lister represents a figure that's not uncommon, I suspect, in all medical fields, namely someone who is both a first-class researcher um, and has ambitions for a public persona. Um, And as such, uh, he becomes the central figure in establishing uh, a well-funded international organisation that is committed to the eradication of AIDS, as we then called it, HIV, as we'd be more likely to refer to it today. And then there's Spencer Carson. He had a very different background. Small town America, blonde good looks and natural charm. He moved to (laughs) London, has a very well-connected wife, work work for her father, and then he was introduced to the exclusive London clubs and became a first-class snob. Of course, this is all the back history that Dennis Altman has given us. A near meeting with Alton John got him interested in AIDS. So what's his role at the Trust? Well, he becomes the administrator um, and he, of course, is a central figure in the story because, and I'm not giving anything away that you can't find on the first page, um, on The book begins with Pomfrey found dead in the sauna um, and Joe, the owner of the sauna, who knows Spencer, calls Spencer in for help. The body is taken to Pomfrey's home uh, to avoid embarrassment both to the conference and to his wife and the book then takes off from there. And they call in another doctor, Alejandro Herrera. Now, he's... 
a, vi a vir virologist and colleague and rival to Pomfrey. And they're at like loggerheads about the testing of the vaccines they're both working on. Uh, and they, But they are tied together doing a sexual behaviour research project. So where was that centred? Look, everything that refers to the larger world of HIV research is in fact totally plausible. None of it happened in the way it does, of course. This is, the, the book is fiction, but um, it was a period in which there were large numbers of research projects going on in which search for a vaccine was central, and both uh, Pomfrey and Alejandro um, are involved in that. Uh, it was a period in which there was a great deal of monitoring of um, sexual behaviour, particularly uh, behaviour among men who have sex with men. Um, so in that sense, although I didn't set out to write a didactic book or an instructive book, uh, there is a certain amount of the history of the AIDS epidemic uh, necessarily as part of the background to the story. Mm. Look, this doctor, he signed the death certificate. It wasn't the, he wasn't Pomfrey's usual doctor, but he signed it. And then they had a very rushed cremation with only a very small group of mourners. Wow. As you said, there are many reasons about this. And maybe jealousy might have been another one. Because, well, apart from the shame, Mary, Pomfrey's wife... Quote, better being a widow than a discarded spouse. So all of this is coming in. And um, also Dr. Alejandro, he knows about the sauna, but he's, because of the project, but he's very worried about the sauna because of his son. He's worried because he has a son um, who has a drug problem and he believes that it is possible that the sauna is one of the places where he's been able to get hold of illicit drugs. Um, I think we're getting to a point, Jan, where we really shouldn't take it any further because we're giving no. away too oh, much. But we're just putting up those people who are all there for a reason. The success of the conference, which has a minor royalty patronage, may lead to a knighthood, if not a peerage. And if it goes ahead, and it does, and it's successful, it's probably due to the efficiency of Pomfrey's PA, Sylvia. Yes, Sylvia is very important because she and Pomfrey's male lover, Noel, are the two people who, in effect, uh, start asking questions, start realising that the death was not perhaps the simple heart attack at home that they've been told it was. And over the course of the book, as they start asking more and more questions, uh, then, of course, we begin to under, understand and uncover uh, the fact that it probably was murder. And I think that's really is as far as I'm going to go in oh, giving away the plot line. But <laughs> Noel works in an antiquarian bookshop. And Sylvia has a special interest in books. What, what is that? 
Sylvie collects old Agatha Christie novels. Now, there is a way in which Death in the Sauna is a bit of a homage to Agatha Christie um, and a bit of a send-up of the, the traditional Agatha Christie-type murder where, you know, you have a number of, of people, all of whom are potential suspects, all of whom have multiple motives. Um, and I quite deliberately, I think, threw in the references to Agatha Christie. <laughs> and you're right, when Sil Sylvie actually by accident, goes into the bookshop where Noel is and finds old paperbacks with, with lurid covers from uh, American versions of Agatha Christie's novels. Uh, one of the enjoyments of this book is the concise backstories of your characters. Now, another two, Caitlin and Rahid, have both been laboratory uh, workers trying to find this vaccine and they often go to the opera together but it is from page 141 <laughs> when they discuss ballet now this is this is a Dennis Altman really out there idea I think uh, you know Jan insisted that I read at least one <laughs> sentence and this is Caitlin's response to traditional ballet where she says ballet is all about respectable perving we get to see beautiful bodies contorting in skin tight clothes and pretend it's high art half the audience only come to check out the set, the cod pieces now i think that came directly from watching a very good french television program l'opera which is set in the paris ballet paris opera ballet which absolutely appalled me, the damage that is done, primarily to young women, but also to young men, in the service of this apparent great art, uh, I found quite shocking. So it was nice to be able to share that with one of my characters, and Caitlin seemed the obvious one uh, to sympathise with my views. Fair enough. <laughs> the humour is not from the bump and grind, but the pretentiousness of those people who are keener on keeping their bored positions than helping the people they should be supporting. Perhaps you didn't have to make all of this up. Look, there's an awful lot in the book that comes directly out of my experience of the international aids world. But I think what I have to say is, yes, there's pretentiousness. Yes, there's ambition. Yes, there's egotism. There's also huge altruism. I mean, there's no question that both Pomfrey and Alejandro, whether we like them or not, were men who were deeply committed to what they were doing. They were desperate to find a vaccine. And I, I had to talk about this book last week uh, to people at an international HIV conference and it was very interesting because they of course picked up a lot of the references mm -hmm. but I think they recognise that one can make fun of something without necessarily saying it's not important. It is important. It's an ex it was and is, continues to be, an extraordinary group of people um, and it gives I hope, a, a texture and a background to what is in the end an entertainment. It's a murder story. Who did it? Well, in the best of Agatha Christie's climaxes, will the truth come out at Pomfrey's memorial service? Or is there a double bluff happening? You'll have to read it to find out. Well, Dennis Altman, is this the last fiction book from you? Do we, or do you need another lockdown to set up a whole series of characters? I need another walk with my friend Tom because this book began in long lockdown walks when Tom and I plotted it. Um, I will, however, say that I have been fantasising about 
a murder story called Death of a Vice-Chancellor. <laughs> and whenever I say that to an audience, I notice that academics sit up and look very happy. So there's clearly a market out there. Well, Death in the Sauna by Dennis Oldman is a murder mystery with an array of interesting characters who may all be suspects in this enjoyable story of politics, sexuality and secret lives. Thank you, Dennis. And now we'll go, and I'm just moving the microphone here, to my guest. And we're going from the heat of a sauna to bitter, biting, cold. So Scott's expedition to be the first to reach the South Pole in 1911 is the stuff of legend. Dennis Glover uses that heroic effort as the backdrop to his new novel, Thor. So, Dennis, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks for having me. Now, there's one little curious tangent we need to deal with before we get to the main story. Mm -hmm. The Land darts and the Nazis, please, Dennis. Well, uh, just before the Second World War, Hermann Goering sent a, uh, an icebreaker with seaplanes on it down to Antarctica to drop darts with, to mark out a new Nazi territory in Antarctica. And... Um, uh, it actually happened. It's a true story. And um, in my novel, the action starts pretty much when one of those darts are found. But it speaks to um, several things. The, the fascination of Antarctica, yep. first and foremost. Mm -hmm. But also it's found, which raises the spectre, and I hope I can get it around my tongue, of glacial archaeology, which we'll come to later. But let's get back to Scott yep. for a minute. His motives for going down to Antarctica. Science. Scott was uh, one of the great explorers of the early 20th century and his expeditions to the South Pole, he led two of them, um, were heavy with scientists. There were like 30 or 40 people on the expeditions and half of them were scientists and they set out to un try and understand Antarctica um, because at the time nobody really knew um, anything about it that, that the ice shelves were floating on, on ice, that the ice was moving, um, that there was land underneath part of it. Nothing was, was known. But you also then raise the notion of this new theory yep. of meteorology. You mean we can one day hope to predict the weather, just like we can predict the movement of the heavens, yep. not just forwards, but backwards too, including why there were ice ages and frozen places like this at different times of history. I know it sounds grandiose, but I feel certain that the weather observations we record down here are the key to unlocking it all. Now, to begin with, there's a curious yep. prescience in yep. raising this now about what was done in 1911 and how it affects us today. That's right. One of the uh, top scientists, lead scientists who went on the expedition was a guy called George Clark Simpson and he, he became a famous meteorologist, head of the British Met Office. And um, he went down there at a time when people were just starting to understand that the world's weather system was like a big machine that was interconnected, but they didn't know why and they didn't have enough data from enough places. So they went down there to try and fill in the gaps of our knowledge about the weather. And as a result of this, um, the findings that he had were, were used by subsequent scientists who were his colleagues to um, figure out the El Nino Southern Oscillation, um, um, which, uh, which is the basis of understanding the climate today. So this was an important 
um, an unexpected moment in the development of climate science. So the weather wasn't yep. just a localised machine, it was a global one. Yep. But it also goes into weather, I apologise. Scott was prepared and equipped for the journey because there's some yep. suggestion that it was ill-prepared. Yeah, this is one of the criticisms made of Scott's journey. I mean, for instance, they took ponies instead of dogs, which meant that they left later in the season um, and they travelled um, uh, less fast. Um, their, uh, their, their clothing was different to that used by Amundsen because, remember, there was another expedition on at the same time by the Norwegians who took dogs, who wore um, you know Eskimo um, clothing and so forth, and they beat them to the pole and got back safely. Scott didn't. There's a lot of a lot of complaints about the type of food they had and so forth. But I think ultimately that wasn't the cause of the downfall of the expedition. It was to do with bad luck. But here we go now with the scientific data yeah. allowing us to go back in yeah. time. So yeah. the data that's been collected over the ages allows you in this novel yep. to look back to see whether, and answer that question, yeah, yeah. whether Scott was prepared or whether he was um, cavalier, shall we say. So we won't answer that because the <laughs> people can read that yeah, yeah. for themselves. Sure. But this then raises this notion of the present day, that practice of glacial archaeology. That's a genuine... Around the world right now, um, you, you pick up the newspaper today, you'll see reports of glaciers disappearing all around the world. Um, and as a result of this, a new branch of science has been created, glacial archaeology, where people go and dig things out of the melting glaciers. They find um, information about the Vikings. Um, they, they pull, um, you know... Uh, Animals, you know, frozen in the permafrost for 40,000 years, you know, and and it's all there. It's all just waiting to be rediscovered. There was a worm that was yep. discovered, not, you know, the other week. And, and, and one of the problems is all those patho all those diseases that are there um, are all going to come back to the surface as well. Oh, don't say that, not after yeah. a pandemic. But this yeah. brings us to Michelle Simpson, or Missy, yeah. and she's engaged in the study of what lies trapped in our melting glaciers and ice shelves, uh, hence the Neuschwabenland darts as well. Yeah. Uh, but Michelle has, or Missy, has a connection to the original expedition. Great-granddaughter to George Clark Simpson, and she goes there, back down to Antarctica to um, try and rediscover the, the evidence of the, the, the lost expedition and to, and to um, you know, save her great-grandfather's reputation. reputation. But she's also made discoveries as well, the yes. ships that were yes. in the North Passage. Um, yeah, well, well, just a year or two ago, they found Shackleton's ship in the Weddell Sea, the one that, crashed due, that, that was crushed by the ice and sunk during Shackleton's famous expedition. And... Um, I wrote that scene in two or three years ago when I was putting the book together, and and here we are. Last year they actually did it. So so you know, and but one of the reasons why they did it is because climate change is changing the climate of the the seas around Antarctica, and the ice was gone, and they were able to find the ship, whereas they couldn't do it before. Do it before. Yeah. Michelle, or Missy's nemesis, yeah. is Christopher Wolfson, who yeah. has panned Scott's expedition as inept, uh, painted it as inept. But he's also paid to rubbish climate science. And I'm not sure whether you intended this or not, but we can see a different mindset 
between 1911 and Scott's attitude and the attitude prevalent today, was that your intention? You know, the sacrifice of Scott, the cynicism of the current day? There's a... It was called the heroic era of Antarctic exploration for a reason. These people were incredibly brave. Um, They went to the South Pole, um, not equipped with the modern equipment we have now. And, you know, five of them sacrificed their lives on the way back. And one of the things they did on the way back was they dragged um, 30 pounds of rocks that they picked up from the the edge of the polar plateau back. And those rocks contain um, fossils of... Uh, tropical plants which proved that it wasn't always covered in ice so it could melt again just as it melted before that they were brave scientists who who put their lives on the line in in the for the cause of humanity would we do that today people you know people do do this today there's a bit of a um and and i put this in the novel there's a bit of a conflict within climate science which is between those who believe in modeling who just get the data from the from the satellites and and all of the weather sort of platforms that they have and try and model things and then there are others who go down there to actually see what's happening they go down into crevasses um, they climb mountains they look at the melting that's occurring they actually see it for themselves and they're incredibly brave people who risk their life all the time Mm. yeah and also i mean you can get core samples as well to give data about what has taken place over time as well yeah um which i would have thought was a sort of archaeology in and of it is it's it is it's archaeology yeah going back millions of years yeah Mm. but also now you've got the physical dangers that uh we face yeah and if i can just find the right spot um Abruptly, the land under Scott and Evans dropped away. They had crossed a thinly bridged crevasse, wider than their ski, and plunged terrifyingly downwards, landing with a sudden snap in their harness. Scott himself went straight down, but saw Evans' forehead bounce off the forward edge of the rock-hard ice. Scott dangled there for several seconds, a terrifying void beneath his finesco, praying that the rope and knot securing him to the heavy sledge above would hold. I mean... Hmm. The physical yeah. danger yeah. Uh, of that expedition. And Missy finds herself in a similar situation when she goes down as well. Yeah. This is what they, these are the sorts of challenges they had to face. It's incredibly dangerous. And this, this is all from the records of what happened to Scott. And one of, of course, the dangers was hypothermia. Um, once you've been out on an expedition trudging over the ice for, for months, um, your body weakens and you're more susceptible to die. Uh, from the cold, and this is and this is what happens. And what I've written is based on modern day explorers like Sir Ranulph Fiennes, who's been down there trying to recreate the Scots expedition. Well, this is where we mm. get to the other description. Yeah. So you've you've got the descriptions of yeah. the physical dangers that they face, but now you get the cold, and getting that cold on paper, the wind was absent, denying them push for their sail, leaving a layer of stagnant, super-frozen air next to the surface of the ice. Whatever slight airs there were came from the north into their teeth, making things worse. This general calmness caused a fog of ice crystals to hang in the air and coat the pulling surfaces with hard, sand-like ice particles that could not melt under the runners of their sledge, now doubling in weight as their tent, sleeping bag and other possessions became encased in heavy rime. So all the way, you've got this bitter, biting, cold. How were you able 
to get that sense of cold. Did you ever experience that cold yourself? Apart from working in the freezer room in an ice cream factory, <laughs> no, and I wouldn't want it either. But as I said, um, Serrano finds one of the world's great explorers um, has has been down there and tried to recreate Scott's expeditions a couple of times and keeps failing because it was almost impossible. Um, and the, the absolute shocking cold, the stuff that smashes your teeth, stops you sleeping at night, oh. awful. But also yeah. you've got... Uh, descriptions of, of skin being ripped yes. off. You take your goggles off too yep. fast. You didn't realise they're frozen to your skin. Yep. And, of course, Oates, yep. his problem was? His foot froze. And he got gangrene. Yep, and um, and and uh, he walked out of the tent, remember, famously saying, I'm just stepping out, yeah. I may be some time. And it's one of the great moments in exploration. Because, well, mm. you, you've also gone into the smell of the gangrene and all of these sorts yep. of things and trying to keep warm next to a little... Uh, cooker that that they had, but again, Oates making a sort that sacrifice, knowing yeah. he was holding yeah. up mm. the others and to give them a chance of yeah. survival. They were heroes, you know. These guys were heroes. They get derided as you know, um, as um, imperialists and so forth. And of course, they were at the time. The British Empire, science was all part of the empire, but they they were incredibly brave and sacrificed themselves to boost our understanding of of. Of the way the world works. Or were they living up to this notion of empire? Yeah. Which was it? As in for science mm. purely or because the empire loved heroes, did they play for it? Did they work towards that image of hero or heroism? As, lo- as well as the science, they wanted to be the first at the pole. So there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of ambition and, and fame involved as well as science, for sure. The question that the novel begins with yep. is, well, whatever else has failed... The scientific work has not. And that should count for something in the long run. So that's George Clark Simpson about the expedition. Does science and what they came back with justify the sacrifice they made? Yes, because they established the basis of our understanding of climate change. You know, up, up until then, everybody thought that changing climate was due to sunspots sun activity but in fact one of the results of this expedition and other research that was going on at the time was that it's actually about the interchange of energy between the atmosphere and the oceans and that's the basis for understanding climate change so these these people risked their lives and one of the byproducts of their expedition was boosting our understanding of climate science this is the birth of our understanding of what's happening to the planet and but they couldn't have foreseen what we're facing now was your objective to perhaps heighten the discussion add contribute to the debate with the book every generation sees the scott expedition in a new light of relevance to them in the 70s it was all about um attacking you know the british ruling class with scott seen as a sort of a pompous idiot from the upper class um as we can see now, um, it has a new relevance, which is helping us understand what's happening to our planet. And if it wasn't for Scott's mm. expedition, we may not have had it. But the novel is Thor. It looks at the Scott expedition, whether it was ill-founded or whether the science was worth the sacrifice. It speaks to a different age of both empire but of discovery. The author is Dennis Glover, 
And it's from Black Ink. So, Dennis, thank you very much for talking with me today. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, we went from the cold <laughs> to the heat, didn't no, we? No, no, we went from, from heat, heat to, to cold. cold. We oh, went from, yes. You haven't got, you, got out of the sauna yet, Jan. You know, the, <laughs> too exciting down there. But fascinating, really, um, to these. But again, using history, yeah. history as the foundation of a novel because you've added that dimension of the, the modern day there as well. Well, as Dennis Altman had, he had the the knowledge that he had from doing all his um, HIV stuff and yeah. uh, took it into fiction too. Very clever. Not away. Well, we'll be back next week uh, with more authors and um, we will see you then. Keep reading. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.